The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock, and I am delighted to be joined this week for the Thursday interview by the former Mayor of London, Ken Livingston, who is coming to me. Ken, I understand uh, from from your local, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> well, that's a that's a, a nice way to to spend uh, a Thursday evening. I suppose there'll be a lot of people listening, Ken, and and uh, they they will immediately that the, the old moniker Red Ken will will spring to mind when they hear your name. Green mm. Green Ken might be a more yeah, appropriate yeah. name now, would it? Oh yeah, but, I mean, I got caught up in all the problems with climate change twenty years ago. You know, we realised it was going to be a big problem. I, but there we are. I mean, no government's doing enough to tackle it. We're heading for... And you look at the, the violent weather events in the last year all around the world. It's scary. It's getting worse so much quicker. Uh, you, you had been talking about joining the Green Party, literally. Uh, has, has that hit the skids or what's the plan there? Well, I, I, I applied to join, but it was just after I'd been accused of being anti-Semitic. So they didn't want to take on a load of abuse in the, the media. So I'm... Basically, ever since I was accused of being anti-Semitic, I've just been an old-age pensioner at home. <laughs> Does but that... I've not just been accused of being anti-Semitic, I've been accused of being corrupt, alcoholic, violent, tax-dodging, homosexual, supporting the IRA's bombing campaign. I've had 40 years of lies and smears. Yeah, but the, I suppose the, the, the anti-Semitism smear is kind of lingering now for a few years. I mean, is it something that occupies you still? Well, no, I, it's quite interesting that in 1981, when I became the leader of the Greater London Council, that evening, the editor of the Daily Mail, I think he's called Paul Dacre, sat down with his team and decided they're going to target me. And he started drafting all these questions for Tory members of the council to ask me, all implying I was anti-Semitic. So it all began then from the editor of the Daily Mail 41 years ago. But in all that time... No one's ever produced any evidence I'm anti-Semitic. I mean, when I was elected mayor, I organised a meeting with the Board of Deputies to tackle anti-Semitism in London. The eight years I was mayor, anti-Semitic incidents recorded by the police went down by half. And in Boris Johnson's eight years as mayor, they doubled. Not because he's anti-Semitic, but he wasn't doing the bloody job. I was out there promoting tolerance, not just for Jews, but for, for blacks, for Asians, women. All forms of hate crime went down in my years as mayor. So, I mean, how then do you assess your expulsion from the Labour Party? I mean, what was it just that you got kind of caught up in something that was happening at the time? Is that, well, is that all, your interpretation? It was nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It was about getting rid of the then Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. And so the Labour Party machine, I were trying to kick out all his supporters, not just me, the Labour MP, um, Chris Williamson and so on, literally, they were terrified that they finally got, Labour finally had a, a genuine left-wing leader. And if they hadn't spent all that time undermining him, we would have won the 2017 election. Do you think so? Because the, oh, yeah. there, there's the school of thought that Jeremy Corbyn was unelectable, and that's why people yeah, wanted him out. That's one of the big lies, because he got elected Labour leader in 2015, Two years later, at the 2017 election, he got the biggest increase in the Labour vote for 72 years. We came within 2% of defeating the Tories. Tories had 42%, we had 40 And then 
literally the establishment was so horrified he might be Prime Minister and John McDonnell would be the Chancellor who cracked down all the tack dodging. So there was then two years of lies and smears and, you know, almost nothing. I mean, about the only paper that wasn't just doing all the lies and smears was The Guardian. So, so in other words, maybe he became unelectable because of that campaign against him? Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you actually look all the lies and smears I've had to put up with. But then I always think, I mean, if I'd been born and brought up in Argentina or Brazil, it wouldn't just have been lies or smears. I'd have been murdered, like most left-wing um, politicians were back in those days. So how then would you describe the Labour Party under the leadership of Keir Starmer? Well, I support Keir Starmer. I think he'll be a good Prime Minister. I don't agree with everything he's done. I think he, he panders a bit too much to the right. But no, he's a good, genuine um, person who came into politics to make life better. Don't get He only became an MP about seven years ago. Before that, he spent his working life prosecuting rapists and murderers. So, in other words, he's in it for the right reasons, you feel? Oh, yeah. I think, I hope I'm going to live long enough to see him in the next election, because I think he could be our best prime minister since Clement Attlee, the 1945 Labour government. And what about Tony Blair and all his success? Well, the trouble is, Tony Blair wasn't really Labour. He was, the only reason he joined the Labour Party, because... In the three years he was at Oxford University, he never once went to any political event. He only joined the Labour Party when he fell in love with Cherie, and she was completely caught up and active in it. And that's the only reason he joined. And the real truth is, he was most probably a Liberal. Uh, Okay, I I mean, I I can understand the the, the criticism... of Tony Blair. You're not the only one who would be critical of Tony Blair. I mean, the, the, Mm. the party did experience, though remarkable success under his leadership. I mean, that, that's a fair, that's a, a statement of fact, isn't it? Yes, it had a good big swing to Labour. Um, but, you know, not quite enough to, you know, when he got in, he got a nice big comfortable majority, but he didn't really push through a good radical socialist policy, just broadly carried on with Margaret Thatcher's policies. So who was the last left-wing leader of the United Kingdom then? Well, the last left-wing prime minister was Clement Attlee in that post-war Labour government. Um, but then, you know, Nye Bavan, who created the NHS, um, and, of course, you know, Michael Foote. Um, and, you know, we've had several you know, Labour MPs on the left, but they're usually kept out of power. How... Would you describe then the state of British politics today, Ken? Well, it's always, I mean, basically, the establishment has massive control. I mean, the me, almost all the the, the newspapers are um, in the hands of you know Tory supporters who are desperate to keep Labour out because they're cracked down on all the tax dodging. Um, and you know, you look at our our tax system. I mean. The very, very super rich pay virtually nothing. I mean, whereas ordinary people, we all end up paying, whether you're working class or middle class, it all gets taken out of your money. But all these billionaires, they money launder it all through I mean, islands in the Caribbean and things like that. If that's the assessment of, of, kind of, of, of politics, what's your assessment of society in Britain? Because I know I was just 
reading a tweet sent yesterday by James O'Brien, the LBC presenter, and he, and he was talking about the sense he gets of of society being on the precipice in Britain, of uh, you know of something remarkable and remarkable in the worst possible way. You know, a kind of a, just a, a divisiveness and a division that he can't remember being there before. I mean, is that is that a fair assessment? Is it one you'd agree with? I don't want no, I think I'm living in London is most probably the most progressive city on earth. I mean, I literally I look at the, the the integration between the different ethnic minorities and so on. In a lot of the world, that just doesn't happen. I mean, literally, you walk down the streets of London, you see, you know, black and Asian men walking along with a white woman, and much of the rest of the world, that just wouldn't happen. So is is politics then a poor reflection? Like, is, is the division and the divisiveness we see in the House of Commons? I mean, that's always been there to a degree. It's the nature of politics. But some would suggest well, it's maybe more toxic now than it has been in the past. Is that a poor reflection on society? Yeah, I mean, when I was an MP for 14 years, I just thought it, Parliament didn't really... I mean, it's still like it today. I mean, they Labour and Tory MPs sit there shouting at each other, drowning each other out. Often when I, I was taking part in a debate in the House of Commons, people couldn't hear what you were saying because all the shouting and jeering. And you look at other parliaments around the world, you don't seem to see that. I mean, and we got a bizarre parliament because we got over 600 MPs, but there's only seats for 420. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And instead of having a desk in front, it's all just squeezed in. So it's all geared up to the, the jeering and booing. Have you a preference as to who you'd like to see be the next Prime Minister? We know it's going to be Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. I know, pretty grim. I mean, if if it's Liz Truss, she'll precipitate a much worse recession. So I hope it's going to be him, not her. But I just want a general election as quick as possible so we can get Keir Starmer into Downing Street. I mean, given the uh, importance of, of the Northern Ireland Protocol to kind of relationships on this island and relationships between these two islands and the, the part it played, I suppose, in, in, in politics in the UK and in the House of Commons over the last couple of years. I mean, what's your view on what is happening with the Irish question, if we go back to that old kind of 19th century well, description? If I look back, even when I got into politics in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, you'd actually see... Irish Catholics living in London just kept their head down because they were getting abused, occasionally assaulted. It had all been ramped up, but they were all supporting the IRA terrorism campaign and so on. But you look at it now. I mean, although for all my criticisms of Tony Blair, he brought an end to all that conflict. And we've now got a, a good working deal um, in Northern Ireland that's brought the communities together. And that violence is now all behind us. Do you think we're closer to a united Ireland or, or to kind of just a peaceful dispensation with two different countries on this well, island? Well, basically, in my maiden speech as an MB, I advocated we should have a united Ireland. I got a lot of abuse in the Tory media. Mm. Um, but in a, in, in a sense now, it isn't as important because we're in you know a global economy. I mean, I grew up in a world where nations controlled all their borders, Almost all your trade was just inside your own country. Now we live in a global economy. I mean, not just goods, but people moving all around the world. It's a very different world. Uh, and yet, 
your own country has kind of retreated to a degree? That's how some would describe it with Brexit from aspects of that global economy. Is that a fair description? I mean, I voted to remain because I knew walking away from the European Union, which is the biggest economy in the world, would be a disaster. And we lost tens of thousands of jobs because of that. Um, And, you know, it was all ramped up. A very dishonest campaign by the right. Um, Being a part of Europe had been really good for us. I mean, we joined about 40 years ago and it was a a boost for our economy. Um, Now... I mean, as we export goods to Europe, they have to be checked and all that. That wasn't the case when we were in the EU. They just were, you know, taken over on the boats or the planes. I mean, all of this, uh, Kenneth, kind of, we'll go full circle before I, I let you go and I let you get back to the local. Um, I mean, <laughs> none, of it, none of it matters, I guess, if we keep heating up the planet at the rate we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, literally, I'm... I mean, what makes me pessimistic about our future is no government anywhere in the world is doing enough to tackle climate change. And when you look at the violent weather events in the last year, it's all getting worse so much quicker. I really worry what it's going to be like for my kids in 20 years. That's what I want them to tackle. That's the big issue. And no government's doing enough anywhere in the world. All right. Well, it's enough to drive anyone down the local. Ken, an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million for joining us. Thanks very much. Cheers. Ken Livingston, former mayor of London, uh, of course. I think that was a, a fairly sobering note to end the show. It was maybe a little too sobering a note to end the show. We were talking about Electric Picnic a little bit earlier uh, today and Snow Patrol, of course, the headline act on Sunday. Take it away, lads. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.